On December 16, 2022, Collin County issued Ivan his death warrant. If you're listening to this in real time, yes, that was last week. Ivan's execution is scheduled for April 26th, 2023. When this thing goes to court and trial, I have one shot and one opportunity to be not guilty or I go to prison in death row. Mm-hmm. That's, that's the reality of it. We have busted alibis. We have caught people in lies. This is just insane because everybody's pointing the finger at somebody else. You just don't hear every day walking in somebody's house, they're going to take the plastic out and pop somebody. So he could get the execution date pretty much any day? Yeah. There's no impediment. This is Cousins by Blood. Episode 37, The 20-Year Timeline, Part 1. Before concluding this podcast investigation, I wanted to go back through everything, everything I had come across over the past four years. And there were certain things that I had yet to even parse through. Ivan's mom, Sylvia, had saved so many letters from the first few years after his conviction. When I started this case, going through these letters were like jumping into the deep end of the pool, too much to wrap my head around without knowing all the players and how they might potentially connect. But after 36 episodes, knowing what we know now, these letters hold a much greater context. And I went back through all the letters Ivan had written me, 200 and counting. Basically, I wanted to go through every statement Ivan ever made, read every letter Ivan ever wrote, to see if his story ever changed. And if so, when I went back through all the legal proceedings and back through all the previous private investigator interviews. I wanted to lay out the past 20 plus years of this case to look at it from the 20,000 foot view to see how it got started, where it's been and how we got here. To begin this chronicle, let's go back to Ivan's first official statement, Detective Wynn's report on his interview with Ivan. We begin minutes after Ivan's arrest on November 8th, 2000. This is Detective Wynn's report, written in third person. Detective Wynn received information from deployment officers that suspect Cantu was in police custody and was en route to Capers. The suspect arrived around 1.15 p.m. He was placed inside an interview room. Detective Wen asked Cantu if he had any knowledge regarding his cousin's death. Cantu replied no. Suspect Cantu began telling how he and his cousin, complainant James Mosqueda, grew up around narcotics pushers. He stated that James began selling drugs in high school. According to Cantu, he never sold drugs, but he did use them. He stated that they owned a tanning salon together before James opened the mortgage company. Cantu stated that once Thanksgiving Day, when they were growing up, his uncle took his life in front of them. As soon as he hits the back door, he drops to his knees and puts the gun in his mouth. 
right before they sat down before Thanksgiving dinner. He stated that his uncle was a big dope pusher. Detective Wen asked Cantu about what happened inside his apartment with the man. Cantu stated that he was home alone on a Thursday night. Amy, his girlfriend, had gone to a tanning salon not far from their apartment. There was a knock at the front door. He stated that when he answered the door, a man dressed in a Domino's pizza uniform forced his way inside. Cantu stated that the guy put a gun to his head and forced him down to his knees. The guy told him that he had fronted James $300,000 worth of cocaine and James paid him $50,000 and still owes him $250,000. Cantu stated that during this ordeal, the guy told him that his name was Matt and James told him that Ivan was coming back to work with him and help him raise money through the mortgage deals to pay the debt. Ivan stated that when he told Matt that he was not going back to work for James, Matt became upset, turned, and shot a hole in the wall. He stated that after Matt shot the hole in the wall, he left. Cantu stated that he did not attempt to contact James until Friday morning. Cantu stated that he called James at the mortgage company on Friday morning, but was not able to speak to James until late Friday night. Ivan stated that he did speak to James late Friday night by phone and James told him to come over. He stated that when he got there and told James what happened, Amy was there freaking out saying she knew something like this was going to happen. Ivan stated that he told James that he was leaving to go to Arkansas to visit his girlfriend Amy's parents' house and needed to go to Albertson's. He stated that James asked him to leave his car and drive his Corvette so that it would appear someone was visiting him. Ivan stated that he drove the car to the store. When he returned, James asked him to drive the Corvette out of town and leave his car in front of his house. Ivan stated that he drove the Corvette to his apartment. While he was packing the car, he called James and told him he was bringing the car back because he did not want to get involved and he did not want to leave his mother's car. He stated that he and Amy drove the Corvette back over to James' house. While he was there, James begged him to take the Corvette back over to his apartment and he would pick it up later. Ivan stated he drove the Corvette back to his apartment and Amy followed him in the Honda. Ivan stated that he parked the car in front of his apartment, took everything out, placed it in the Honda, and drove it to Arkansas. Ivan stated that when he went back the second time to pick up his car, there were two vehicles parked in front of James's residence. Ivan stated that that was the last time he saw James alive. Suspect Cantu had in his possession the key to the Corvette. He surrendered the key to the vehicle. Detective Wynn told Ivan that there was a major problem. Detective Wynn informed Ivan that during the search of his apartment, detectives recovered some bloody blue jeans and bloody socks and the trash can in the kitchen. Ivan told Detective Wynn that someone was trying to set him up. Detective Wynn told Ivan that the pair of jeans recovered in the trash can was a pair of Arizona jeans size 34-32, and there was a pair of Arizona jeans size 34-32 on a hanger in the master bedroom closet. Ivan told Detective Wynn that he wanted to see his attorney. The interview ended. As you heard, that's Wynn's report of what Ivan said. Ivan disputes some of these details, which is why for the past 20 years, Ivan has tried to get the audio recording from this interview. 
to prove that Wynn got things wrong. But that recording has never been handed over to Ivan's defense. Most of this report is what we've already heard from Ivan or others. But Ivan brings up one significant difference from his story and Wynn's report. Ivan stated he drove the Corvette back to his apartment and Amy followed him in the Honda. Ivan stated that he parked the car in front of his apartment, took everything out, placed it in the Honda, and drove it to Arkansas. So that matches Amy's story and puts the Corvette back at their apartment complex where it was recovered. But you remember Ivan's story that he left James Corvette at James and Amy's house on Gibbons Drive, which would imply that someone else had driven the Corvette back over to his apartment complex in order to set him up. So did Ivan come up with his story about leaving the Corvette at James and Amy's house after this interview with Wynn, once he had more time to craft the best narrative for his innocence? Ivan says no and explained in a letter. Matt, the audio tape recording of my interview would prove Detective Wynn manipulated the report. In the report, he's claiming that Ivan said that the Corvette was left at the apartment. Matt, I never said that, and his trial testimony proves this. This is what Detective Wynn said on the witness stand. According to Mr. Cantu, Mr. Mosqueda asked him to take the Corvette and drive it out of town. Mr. Cantu stated that he drove the Corvette to his apartment complex, thought about it for a little while, decided he was not going to drive the Corvette. He then drove the Corvette back to Mr. Mosqueda, left the Corvette, him and his girlfriend got in the Honda and drove to Arkansas. At trial, he states that I left the Corvette at Gibbons. And Matt, during trial, Detective Wynn was reading from his notes. See, it, it's completely different than the bullshit he spewed into the November 8th report. There are other discrepancies between Ivan's current story and Wynn's report. But the additional part that jumps out is... Suspect Cantu had in his possession the key to the Corvette. He surrendered the key to the vehicle. Now that is a significant piece of evidence. That's the only piece of evidence that was on Ivan's person. Ivan could claim that someone else was setting him up by putting things in his trash can and closet while he was out of town. But how could he explain evidence that was in his pocket? Well, I never gave that key to Detective Wynn. Matt, had I done so, it would have been logged into evidence. There's no record of me surrendering that key other than this BS report. There's no picture of the key. And don't you think they would have made a big deal about me handing over the key at trial? Matt, it never came up at trial. Because it was another lie. And Ivan is right. The supposed surrendered key never comes up again in the case file. It's as if it never happened. So either Detective Wynn lost this key piece of evidence or his report is incorrect which would beg the question, what other parts of Wynn's report is incorrect? There was a pair of Arizona jeans size 34-32 on a hanger in the master bedroom closet. As we know by now, these jeans were never taken into evidence, and no picture was taken of the jeans Detective Wynn states was hanging in Ivan's closet. But here's the thing. Other pictures were taken of that closet. There was a picture of the majority of clothes hanging in the closet and numerous pictures of the box of bullets that were on the top shelf in the closet. If this second pair of jeans was the only evidence at trial 
to prove that the jeans in the trash can were indeed Ivan's, the camera was right there, in the closet. This is the testimony from Detective Witsit. He was the one in the apartment actually taking the pictures and collecting the evidence. Now, Detective Witsit, after finding all of these items you found, like you said, the jeans and the socks and the trash can, is that where those were? Yes, ma'am. Okay. Did you locate any other men's clothing in the apartment? Yes, ma'am. And what kind of men's clothing? There was all kinds of slacks and shirts and so on, as I recall, in the closet, in which we found the keys and the ammunition. Were there other pairs of blue jeans in that closet? As I recall, yes, ma'am. Were these looked at in comparison to the blue jeans that were found in the trash can? I believe Detective Wynn and his... The other detective from Homicide did, yes, ma'am. Were you there when that was done? Yes, ma'am. Do you have any knowledge as to how similar or maybe how unsimilar the jeans in the trash can were to the ones found in the closet? No, ma'am. The third detective in the apartment that day was Detective Julia Carney, and she didn't testify. So we don't know what she'd have to say about this mysterious second pair of jeans hanging in the closet. But Detective Witsit said he was right there too for the comparison of this second pair of jeans, which Detective Wynn said was an exact match, another pair of 34, 32 Arizona jeans. Wow, that's significant. And yet Detective Witsit had no knowledge about the similarity to the jeans in the kitchen trash can. And with a camera in his hand, he didn't snap a picture. So it does make this second pair of jeans questionable. And why that's important is if Detective Wynn in fact lied and created fraudulent reports about this second pair of jeans, he was the lead detective on this case. So it really does bring the integrity of this whole investigation into question. And getting back to Ivan's interview with Detective Wynn, unless the audio recording of the interview is ever released, we'll never know for sure exactly what was said in Ivan's first official interview. Ivan remained in Dallas County Jail for six days. He then was transferred to... Holland County Jail. ...on November 14th, and the jailhouse tape started shortly thereafter. Hey. Hey, Mom. Good morning. Mm-hmm. What's going on? Just trying to get the day in order. Okay. Uh, did you try calling Smiley? A few weeks later, Ivan made this statement before getting his court-appointed attorneys. This guy gets paid by the state. Which the state gets paid by inmates being here. Yeah. Why in the world would he was going to fight for me to get out and lower the state's money coming into the prison? This is a business. And after meeting his attorneys, he told his mom... Yeah, I'm not, I'm not getting impatient or I'm not getting antsy. I'm just... I would feel more comfortable if I had my attorney team more motivated. Mm-hmm. You know, I shouldn't have to, you know, yes. coach my attorneys on, on how to do this thing. Okay. That's what scares me. And that sentiment continued. Ivan's first statement during his trial came on the eighth day of the guilt and innocence phase. For the previous seven days, the state had presented their case. 
And on Friday, October 12th, 2001, it began like this. Are both sides ready to bring in the jury? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. For the record, the defendant, the attorney, and the attorneys for the state are here, and we're ready to bring in the jury. Please be seated. Ms. Falco? Your Honor, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, the state of Texas rests. Mr. Geller? Your Honor, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, the defense rests. All right, ladies and gentlemen, at this point, you have heard all the evidence you're going to hear in this case. And although at the beginning of trial, Ivan pled not guilty, if the state of Texas just spent seven days presenting their case and calling their 30 plus witnesses, and then when it's the defense's turn, the defense rests, for a jury, how can that be seen as anything other than conceding guilt? Ivan knew the possibility of being found not guilty of capital murder just went down to zero. At the end of the, the guilt and innocence phase of the trial, at least the defense, your attorneys rested their case without presenting any evidence or even calling any witnesses. Um, did they give you a reason, your attorneys, give you a reason that they weren't calling any witnesses? They did, and it was a horrible reason. They felt that they that the prosecution had not proved their case, and therefore that the burden was on the prosecution, and that just to trust Mr. Geller and that his closing, that he would be able to uh, to discredit and disprove the case. Well, I mean, I, I knew that that wasn't true, especially, you know, sit, sitting through the, through the trial myself and going through the information and the, the evidence that was presented. Um, it was, I mean, they... I mean, had I, had I been on the jury, I would have believed what the prosecution was saying, even though all the facts that weren't presented. But, the, but we did not present a defense. They didn't cross-examine the, the witness properly. And during that situation, I even noticed that something was wrong. I stopped the court hearing. We had an ex parte hearing. That's a hearing that the judge grants at the request of only one party. The jury or prosecution were not in the courtroom for this. Ivan's lawyer, Matt Geller, called Ivan to the stand. And Mr. Cantu, you are the defendant in this case, correct? Yes, sir. And I am your appointed counsel, correct? Yes, sir. You wanted to either make an affidavit or make a record that my closing the evidence was against your wishes and desires, correct? Yes. There is a disagreement that definitely exists between how you would elect to proceed as far as witnesses and evidence and testimony at this time versus Mr. High and myself? Yes. All right. That's all I have for this witness. So it was on the record that Ivan was in a disagreement with his attorneys not presenting any evidence or calling any witnesses on his behalf. The court was adjourned for the weekend, and that following Monday morning, the jury was dismissed for the day and told to come back Tuesday at 9 a.m. The ongoing situation between Ivan and his attorneys had continued to boil over the weekend. So that Monday morning, the judge said, The jury is outside the courtroom, and in chambers, the attorney for the defendant has raised an issue before the court in the presence of the attorneys for the state. So would you put on the record whatever you'd like to put on the record? Thank you, Judge. My name is Matthew Geller. I'm an attorney appointed to represent the accused in this capital murder prosecution of Ivan Abner Cantu, my client. I would state to the court that I have good, bona fide, genuine reason to believe that there may be an issue regarding my client's competency or incompetency as it may be. 
I would state to the court that it is my opinion, beginning approximately October, October 10th, I have found, with increasing difficulty, my ability to consult with my client with a reasonable degree of rational understanding. Myself and Mr. High and my mitigation specialist, Mr. Vince Gonzalez, spoke with our client for about an hour and 45 minutes regarding strategy and other kinds of trial issues, and we began to question whether our client was competent at that point in time. Mr. High and I went out to the Collin County Sheriff's Office and obtained a contact visitation with Mr. Cantu this past Saturday the 14th. And again, it became more apparent to me that there is an issue, or at least a potential issue regarding competency. I discussed the matter with Mr. High and I discussed the matter with my mitigation specialist, Vince Gonzalez. Mr. Gonzalez has never seen anything quite like this with a capital murder defendant. And his comments to me reinforced my thoughts that there's something maybe not right with Ivan's mind right now as far as the way he processes information and hears people speaking. And based on Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday of last week, I saw an increasing deterioration of my client's ability to consult with me, listen to my advice and counsel, and therefore, I, as an officer of the court, I firmly believe that there is something there. I don't know what it is, but I'd ask the court to appoint a mental health expert to make further inquiry of the matter. I think that's all I have at this point, Your Honor. So basically, when Ivan did not want to go along with the program, go along with the defense not presenting any evidence or calling any witnesses, his attorney, Matt Geller, claimed he was mentally incapable to stand trial. Ms. Falco? Your Honor, I've been waiting 14 years for this chance. And this is when it seems like the prosecution began to have a little fun with Geller's incompetency claim. They had apparently known each other for some 14 years. And on this matter, they were able to cross-examine Matt Geller. You don't have any specialized medical training involved with legal training, do you? No, ma'am. Probably been to doctors like everybody else, but that's most of your connection. Is that fair? Yes, ma'am. But I would concede, no, I have no formal training in those areas. But you don't consider yourself a naive man? No, ma'am. Or a gullible man? No, ma'am. But you're telling this court that you have a genuine concern about your ability to communicate with your client? Absolutely. You're pretty sure it's not you, right? You don't feel like you're the problem there, right? No, ma'am. That's all the questions we have, Judge. And this little back and forth must have been somewhat comical for certain parties in the court, because Ivan interjected, Do I have the opportunity to speak? I mean, I'm glad it's amusing to all of you and you're laughing, but this is my life and I'd like the opportunity to speak. I'd ask the court to admonish him. He's not a witness. I'd ask the court to admonish him to not speak. Excuse me just a moment, Judge. I'm not sure the court has got that authority. I don't mean that confrontationally. And I don't know that anybody could admonish someone that he doesn't have a right to speak. I believe that's his right, not ours to say whether He's got the right to speak or not at a hearing involving him. Now, Mr. Cantu, what I'd like to do is hear whatever you have to say about your competency, because this is the first case of sudden onset incompetency I've ever seen. It sounds like even the judge finds Geller's incompetency claim peculiar. Judge, I know I'm interrupting you again. Could I, just for the record, I've got to protect everything. Could I have a ruling on my objection to be commenting in front of the state? What would you prefer? The state not be present? 
Yes, Your Honor, I would. With complete respect and understanding, this is a proceeding involving the state of Texas. And if evidence is going to be offered to the court directly relating to this criminal prosecution, we insist upon staying here. It's our case. We are the state, and there's no... Respectfully, there's no authority for having us leave. And that would also put the court in a position that it's really not the court's responsibility to protect the state's interest, depending upon what's happening. We're the only ones that can fairly do that. And you're the only one that has to be the neutral arbiter of this. And no, sir, <laughs> we stay. Let's take a five-minute recess. Talk to your client. Tell me what he has to say, and I'm sure if it's not an accurate rendition, Mr. Cantu can tell me it's not accurate and... Yes, sir. That's the way we're going to do it. So let's step down for about five minutes. About 30 minutes later, the court resumed. We're back on the record in Mr. Cantu's case. I understand that you've talked to your client, Mr. Geller, and you have some notes you want to share with me. Is that correct? Yes, Your Honor. I'd prefer to do it this way than have my client either testifying or being subject to cross and I've written down the major themes that Mr. Cantu would like to discuss with the court. Mr. Cantu would like the court to know that he is not a marshmallow, that he is in chains, that he has pieces of a puzzle that we need to put together. That would explain Carlos doing that to James, waiting on the big deal to come in, and apparently something went wrong. That his attorneys have not done their homework. I think we need to talk to Matt and get him uh, in there to talk to you. Yeah, look at Mr. High so that when I tell him something, he doesn't say, well, let me room Mr. High here because we've known that since the first meeting and I, I haven't met the other guy. That his attorneys have told the jury that he's a piece of shit. His words, I'm sorry for the profanity on the record. Jury only thinks what they hear from bad people. His attorneys have not shot anybody in the ground. The more truth he tells his lawyers, the more they won't fight. The more honest he is, the less his attorneys will work. His attorneys have not presented evidence that he is not guilty. I know that Ivan did not leave the weapon. She was there all day by herself at my apartment. So how would that possibly get in my apartment? Her, they brought this stupid weapon to my apartment, so let me say something. His lawyers are possibly throwing this case, quote unquote, because we work with Collin County. He would like to explore the possibility with the court of new counsel. We have not. His attorneys have not done enough research. Anytime that she says something bad about me, they had to relate to an item. She didn't have access to it or she couldn't give it to him. So therefore, her answer for everything was, well, it was thrown away on the highway or it was thrown away in the trash or this dumpster over here. Do you realize that? He does not know what all of his legal options are at this point. He would like to explore with the court the possibility of proceeding pro se. And that finally, Mr. High and I do not want to win. All right, is there anything from the state? You know, if you listen to what's being offered by Mr. Geller, ironically, much of what he said is very trial-related and awareness of these proceedings related. Just because we think the interpretations are incorrect or wrong doesn't mean they're irrational or that he doesn't understand the proceedings. For example, he's correct. He's been in chains. That's been what's been occurring throughout this trial for good reason. I understand some of his remarks. Apparently, it annoyed him earlier that Mr. Geller and I had a certain amount of lightness about the proceedings that occurred. It was good-natured and perhaps a little bit of stress relief when I kidded Mr. Geller about having him on the stand and asking him about his medical training. 
And there was certainly levity both sides. And I think the defendant correctly perceived what was going on at this time. The fact that he's dissatisfied with his attorneys may not, in our minds, be correct in view of the work that they've done, but it's not irrational to say. It's not irrational for somebody to say, my attorneys derive at least a portion of their income from court-appointed cases and working with the court systems of Collin County in providing defenses. It's certainly not irrational for him to be concerned about whether or not that creates any conflict or any reluctance on the part of his attorneys to do perhaps what he, well, what he thinks should be done. With regard to the competency issue, we are of the opinion that the court would be justified in taking the position that at this point insufficient evidence has been presented to even warrant the convening of a competency hearing or the appointment of a psychiatrist. Everything we've seen throughout this trial has indicated the alertness of the defendant. His behavior in this court has been impeccable. There's been no evidence of any type of bizarre behavior or histrionics. Even his remark that you all may be laughing, but my life is on the line here, that's a fact. That's exactly where we are. And that's all I've got to say about all that, Judge. Your Honor, may I address the court? Well, I'll tell you what. You do so at your peril if you... Let me advise you of this. If you want to say anything to the court, I would advise you to stay away from anything having to do with the merits of the case. Absolutely, I will, Your Honor. In my opinion, I feel I am fully competent. This is not a problem, Mr. Geller or Mr. High. I feel there's maybe research or some things that haven't been added to this trial that can help me going forward. But before ever choosing to go pro se, do I have the option of asking you possible questions of what I... Ever since I've been at the sheriff's department in jail on numerous occasions, I've requested to go to the law library and get law books, but I've not been allowed to because according to the sheriff's rule, as long as you have court-appointed counsel, you can't read the law books. You can't look at the criminal codes of procedures. It's not going to happen. How would someone know all their options on choosing pro se and knowing what you can and can't do? Well, of course, the start is to talk to your attorneys about how it works. Okay. They've informed me that you're on your own and your resources are limited. Now, how can someone fight a capital murder case without having the proper resources that the state has to fight it? Well, that's probably why you don't see very many intelligent defendants representing themselves in criminal cases. Perhaps you've heard, you know, you don't give yourself an appendectomy, right? You go to a doctor to get that done. And so that's why you generally don't see people representing themselves. And when you do, you generally don't see them representing themselves with very good results. So to answer your question, how do you find out? You have to rely on your attorney's best advice with regard to what steps you take next. Ultimately, many of these things are your decision. It's your decision whether or not you testify. It's your decision whether or not you put on a case. But it's their duty to give you their best advice with regard to what would be a smart thing for you to do. Okay, if I was to choose pro se from the court, what kind of time factor would I be looking at? What, to prepare? Yes, Your Honor. Well, let me tell you, we've got a jury in the box, and I don't know if you've ever heard the term about Jeopardy attaching, but Jeopardy is attached in this case, and we've got a jury. 
So I think if I were really going to give you time to prepare for this case, Mr. Cantu, I'd probably have to give you about eight or ten years, because the first thing we'd have to do is send you to law school. And then we'd have to give you about five years of practice in the criminal courts. And I don't think the system would allow you to wait ten years to prepare yourself to defend yourself. But I will allow you to represent yourself if you decide you want to. You have to decide whether you're going to rely on your attorneys or not. If you don't, you will be on your own. Are they still able to be available as co-counsel? Well, it's possible that I would let them. But here's the thing. I'm not going to let you go pro se and then let them represent you. And you represent yourself and they represent you and you represent yourself. You're either going to be represented by them or you're going to represent yourself with them available to assist you a little. But keep in mind, too, that as standby counsel, they're not going to be able to make objections and they're not going to be able to handle witnesses. They're not going to be able to question the witnesses. They're not going to be able to cross-examine. They're not going to be able to put on your witnesses for you because you're pro se. They'll be standing by to help you. But once someone chooses pro se, you're able to put witnesses on that stand, correct? You can put witnesses on the stand if you're not pro se. You can put witnesses on the stand if they represent you. So that shouldn't be the deciding factor whether or not you want to put on witnesses. If you want to put on witnesses, then they can put them on for you. But Ivan had written out questions for multiple witnesses, such as Tawny, Chris Head, Amy Head, Anthony Fonseca, and submitted those to Matt Geller and Don High. But his attorneys would not call them to the stand. And if they're not agreeing to do so, then that's something I have to go with? Well, that's something you two, you, you three have to decide together, you and your attorneys. Right. I think that's... What approach do you take and how do you put on any evidence that you want to put on? Or do you put on no evidence? Because that's the smart thing to do, is to put on no evidence or put on a little bit of evidence. You know, it could be that you would call three witnesses and it's a great idea to call two of them. And the third witness that you thought was such a great idea to put on kills you, right? Could happen, yes. Or could be that all three would kill you. And then you'll look back someday and say, you know, I sure wish I had just taken my attorney's advice. Or all three get me home, and I think that's... It's conceivable. ...where we're bumping into some problems. If I was to make that choice, how limited am I to resources being at the jailhouse? Would you allow Mr. High or Mr. Geller to pull documents for me or actually submit and turn in the evidence or at least help me retrieve it? In terms of resources, let me tell you something. If I let you go to the law library right now and told you to sit in that law library for the next two months and do nothing but read materials from the law library, you wouldn't know anything more about defending yourself in two months than you know right now. So it depends on what resources we're talking about and what materials we're talking about. You can give me an hour to make that decision? Mr. Cantu, if you jump into this case on your own, it's not going to be very long before you are completely lost and floundering. But nevertheless, you have a constitutional right to represent yourself, and I'm certainly not going to interfere with that. If you decide to go pro se, great. You tell me that tomorrow morning at nine, and you're on your own, all right? On the other hand, if you tell me at nine tomorrow morning, I want the two, I've come to my senses, and I've decided that I'm better off with the two attorneys that I've got, then let's make that the way that we run this case. I understand. 
Yeah, and you were at one point considered possibly representing yourself, right? I, I did, right. I, I bet um, they discouraged me of that, letting me know that, you know, uh, um, you know, that that was a horrible thing to do. But in hindsight, even though I didn't know know the law, I knew enough to that I I knew that I could ask certain questions to the witnesses. And if and if they would have released the documentation to us in the binders that were withheld, the Brady material, and let's review that, we could we could have discredited the state's case. And I mean, in in, in hindsight, I almost wish I, I would have done that, but I didn't because, you know, I was, I was 27 years old. I didn't know the law, and these are the pros and the experts, you know, letting me know and telling me how this process is supposed to play out and to trust them. But uh, in my heart, I, I did not trust them, and I knew that they weren't they weren't fighting for me. That's when, when I presented it to Judge Sandoval to let him know that, that these attorneys are not fighting for me. And literally, you know, there is information that we have on the defense table that they can present that would help me, that would, that would either raise reasonable doubt or, or, or secure a not guilty verdict. He um, discouraged me that that was the wrong thing to do, that he would not give me access to the, to the, he would not put this thing on hold. He was not going to allow me to use the law library. To, to study and, and learn what I needed to, just to, just to ask some some basic questions, and maybe just the the formality of the court and what was allowed and, and, and not allowed. And had I just had um, so a few basic materials, and even while I was in the Collin County Jail, I filled out grievances because they would not. They they said since I had counsel, they would not let me use the the law library. Hmm. What else? Anything else you feel like you would have done differently if you had, had if you had ended up representing yourself? I would have prepared a motion to submit to the courts and asked them to to provide a funding for a, for a private investigator, someone that I could have sat down with that would that would hear me out and listen to the to um, what I have to say in regards to picking apart the state's case. Now, I mean, okay, if you were to if you were to take everything that I say and put that off to the side and not not believe a word that I say, let's go through the police reports, let's go through the testimony, let's go through the statements of the people, and you'll clearly see that it's a complete fraud on on the jury on my life, on the case, and none of it pans out, and we've been able to discredit it. And I would have done everything I could to, to do that during trial. Ivan's trial continued, and the following day, it was established that Ivan had decided not to go pro se, and the trial would proceed with his court-appointed attorneys. As both sides had rested, the only business remaining for the guilt and innocence phase were the closing arguments. We'll get to those in the final episode. But for right now, continuing this chronicle, closing arguments began at 10 a.m., concluded at 11.30 a.m. And about four hours later, the jury had reached the unanimous decision. Ivan Abner Cantu was guilty of capital murder. After the punishment phase, Ivan was sentenced to death on October 26, 2001. Four days later, he wrote this letter. Dear Mom, basically it's this simple. If we question the state's witnesses and the jury is able to view all these people's lies, they won't know who's lying and who's not. I love you, Mom, and with having all these pieces, we can win this case on appeal. Ivan wrote a numbered list for his mom, entitled this portion of the letter, Things That Would Strike You As Being Very Odd. One, at one time or another, both Carlos and Amy worked for baby dolls in Arlington or Fort Worth. We don't know the dates, but we want to be able to use this as a coincidence in closing arguments. We still don't know if there's anything to this. But logically, it seems safe to assume if Ivan was telling his mom this four days after trial, he also told this to his lawyers prior or during trial. Now, when I called baby dolls, 
they said they did keep employee time card records, but after seven years, they're destroyed. Had Ivan's attorneys hired a PI to do some investigating, they would have easily figured out this issue. What reason did your attorneys give you for not hiring a private investigator? Okay, well, my trial attorneys, uh, Mr. Matt Geller and Don High, they did tell me that they were in the process of hiring a gentleman named Cecil Mixon. As time was going by, and I was wondering, you know, when am I going to meet with this gentleman or, or when are they going to share the information that needs to be shared with this gentleman? I mean, he never came to the, the prison and they weren't answering my questions. So I, I, I immediately knew some, something was going on and that, uh, that they had no interest in hiring a, a private investigator. Had they brought on a private investigator? What are some of the things, the most important things you think the PI could have done to prove your innocence at that time? Well, right at that time, we could have determined that the witnesses were lying. You have to realize that Dallas Police Department, from the get-go, they did not really investigate this case. But we would have been able to prove right out of the gate that the information that the, that the Dallas Police Department and that these witnesses were saying was not truthful. Yeah, to discredit the, the witnesses. That's right. Two, the evening I met Amy at Club 7, she stated that she had already met Bobbitt. You'll remember Ivan was Bobbitt's roommate for a few months prior to meeting Amy and myself the weekend prior at Lake Louisville, which means we could have told her when we were going to be at Club 7. With this information, we can prove that Amy was looking for a new sucker because the weekend I met her was the last weekend for her to work. And yes, Ivan writes his mom in this numbered list, so this doesn't create the best narrative, but it's real. At least what Ivan's trying to present to his mother is real. And while this numbered list doesn't crack the case, it certainly adds more interesting context. Number three. The only reason she had Jeff moved to Texas from Arkansas was because she knew that she was going to be jobless and without transportation. Her original plan of having Jeff pick up the slack never worked out because he's also lazy. Number four. While evaluating the home phone records, there are multiple phone calls to Austin during the daytime. During the daytime, I was either at the office or out in the field looking for deals to close. This is in reference to Gambino. So even four days after his conviction, Ivan thought, or at least projected to his mom, before the murders occurred, that there was, there was some heavy conversation between him and Amy. Number five. It's also very odd that the evening that the murders occurred, we went to locations where she knew people or to her friends' houses. We really don't know the names of Amy's friends. They all go by nicknames, such as Rubes, Metal, Smiley, and Lips. I cannot believe that we didn't check into these people. You've heard from Metal. Rubes is Chris Ruberg, Amy's boyfriend right before Ivan. And Lips was Amy's stepsister's boyfriend, I believe. But I still don't know his name. Number six, Amy gave four statements to the police. In all of her statements that were written on paper by her or the police, all statements mention that she threw away a rubber glove with the bloody jeans and socks. Under oath, when she was asked questions by the state and the defense, she didn't have any knowledge about a rubber glove. This proves that whatever story she was sticking to, it was not accurate. This also proves that she was forgetting who she told what. Number seven. If Frank Perez was living with James for three weeks, obviously he trusted this guy. Don't you think that James would have given him a house key? Our defense didn't think this was a good question to ask him. Don stated to let the jury put two and two together. Number eight. With Tawny playing a major role in this case, why was she not called by the state or of the defense? I'll tell you why. The state didn't want her because Tawny would have just stated that a gun appeared out of nowhere. I still have no idea why my attorneys never called her to the stand. 
number nine. According to Amy's testimony, she feared for her life the whole weekend. But what's funny is that she never seemed afraid or told a soul. If she was afraid the whole weekend, she did a great job of keeping a secret. Why is it that when I got arrested, she was no longer good at keeping a secret? The reason is because there weren't any secrets. She had the plan calculated all along. Below, look at how many times she could have asked for help if she was in extreme danger. Please note, this is from her testimony. Number one, evening of November 3rd, when I supposedly told her I was going to kill James and Amy. Yep, Ivan makes a list within a list. And it is mind-bending to think of Ivan's mindset making this list if he is guilty and listing all the times essentially his hostage could have gotten away from him or told someone if she so chose. Morning of the 4th, when we went to Smiley's apartment to buy drugs. After Smiley's, she states, I took her to view the bodies. We went to Club 7, where she had many friends around. She states, we left Club 7, police are always in front. She states we went to Harlan's place, he has a phone, and many other people that were there had cell phones. After she states we left Harlan's place and went to some other guy's apartment to do more drugs, she could have called 911 there. After that, she states we went to one of her friend's house. The guy's name was Metal, but no one ever tried to locate this guy or find out his real name. Her testimony states that he's a major drug dealer and his home is equipped with high-tech security cameras covering the full exterior of the home and the property grounds. This guy has multiple guns and weapons at his house, and I touched many types of guns over at his house before. This is where I could have easily touched a gun clip that would have put my fingerprint on it. This is the first time on our record that Ivan made this fingerprint claim coming from a gun he touched in Metal's garage. And no way does that make it true, but it is interesting he has been saying that seemingly all along as well. After finding out Metal's real name, I ran his background report. Like a lot of characters in this case, he is a lengthy rap sheet. And in 1998, Metal was arrested for unlawfully carrying a weapon, a handgun. We don't know if Metal had a bunch of guns in his garage, like Ivan claims in 2000, but at least on that one day in 1998, Metal did have a gun. Number nine, she states we leave Metal's house to go back to the apartment on Pear Ridge. With Metal being one of her dear friends, she could have easily told him that her life was in great danger. She never said anything because her life was not in danger. Back at the apartment, while I was loading the car to go to Arkansas, why didn't she lock me out and call 911? This is now her 10th opportunity to call for help. On the way to Arkansas, we stopped at many gas stations or to use the restroom. No attempts here. Around 8.30 p.m., we arrive in Arkansas. She could have told her mother and Dick Kramer they had a phone. The next day, November 5th, we went to the grocery store so we could gather up some items for dinner. On the way back to the house, we witnessed a head-on collision. We even went back to the grocery store to get the police and tell them about the crash. The evening of November 6th, Amy and her mom went to the store by themselves and she had a full hour to tell her mother if she was in great danger. They could have easily told the police. The next day, we had lunch with her mother at her mother's work. We stopped by there prior to leaving for Texas. I know her mother's work had a phone to call for help. We arrived to Dallas when we went to Tawny's apartment. Shortly after, I went to the Pear Ridge apartment. This gave Amy plenty of time to tell Tawny or call the police. The morning of November 8th, Amy and I went to meet you and Penny at the IHOP 
That even had police officers in uniform there. Four police, three or four policemen walked in, I don't know, more than two. And they sat behind him, and he didn't even flinch. He sat there the entire time. But Amy got up and got away from the table. She she left. She wanted to go. She went to go talk on her phone. Or, But I remember it was cold. And I thought, wow, she's pretty tough to be standing out there when it's cold that long. But she was definitely uh, talking with someone on the phone that you remember. Yes, absolutely. Most of the time. Almost the entire time. I I remember the words Ivan said. He said he trusts her with his life. And the moment he said those words, I just got sick to my stomach. I don't know why. I don't know. It was premonition. Right. But you and Sylvia had your doubts about her. Definitely, yes. And mm-hmm. why would you say that? Well, first of all, he didn't know. He didn't know her. She, she, he said she drugged him and knocked him out for hours. Well, let's talk about Amy Betcher and the night of the murders. Do you, do you think that Amy Betcher had ever drugged you? And what, if so, what would make lead you to think that? Well, on that particular night, I, I don't know exactly. I don't know for sure. But there was another incident where we were at the lake and um, to where she gave, she, she gave me something that, that, that knocked me out and, and did not allow me to, to wake up. Now, this was, this was the summer before. We were on uh, a gentleman's boat. Uh, his name was Nick Tucker. And um, there was, um, I was actually scheduled, I was, I was just friends with Amy then, but I was actually scheduled to go on a, on a date with, uh, with someone else that evening named Kim Madden. And when she came out to, uh, to the lake to, vi- to visit us there at Lake Louisville and on the pier, um, I was already passed out. And I didn't wake up till that next morning. But um, Amy had, uh, she gave me something. Um, it was either, I don't know if it was a Rohypnol or, or an Ambien, but I woke up the next morning at the lake. This, this was, you know, the summer, summer before the murders occurred. In your statement uh, about the main days in question, in this case, you state that the morning of Saturday, November 4th, before you went to Arkansas, when you woke up, you felt a huge knot on the back of your head? I did. I, yeah, that, that morning I, I, had a, I had a knot on the back of my head. What else do you remember about that? I don't, I don't, that was it. I mean, I remember, you know, entering the apartment early that morning. Um, but I, I didn't think anything of it. And, um, she just said that, Hey, I must have, you know, I fell and hit my head and that wasn't true. But yeah, that morning I did have a, a slight, you know, not on the back of my head. Were there portions of the night prior that you don't remember? No. Nope. Is it possible then, I guess, that, that Amy maybe have given you another one of those sleeping pills or some sort of drug that something the night of the murders? I don't know. And we took a little detour there. I don't know what to make about Ivan's claim that Amy drugged him and the knot on the back of his head when he woke up the morning of November 4th. But that felt as good a place as any to fit it into this frenetic narrative. Back to Ivan's letter to his mother, and all the times Ivan said Amy could have gotten away from him. After IHOP, Amy and I went over to Metal's house until daylight. Again, like an idiot, I was touching firearms. At daylight, we went back to Tawny's apartment. When I left Tawny's to go meet you, Mom, Amy had plenty of time to call the police. Once I was arrested, she still didn't call for help. She never told the police until she got back to Arkansas. That's 21 times she could have said something to somebody or called for help, and she never did. You know why? Because it's a complete lie. She wasn't scared of me, and her life was never in danger. About a week later, Ivan wrote this next letter to his mom. November 6th, 2001. Dear Mom, I know that I'm overwhelming you with information, but I feel that I need to tell you now so that I won't forget later down the road. All this information is what I told my attorneys and they kept telling me that they have everything under control. 
the state used many lies from non-credible witnesses to convict me. We have got to discredit Amy and show the next jury that she is a very manipulating person and she hops from one person to another. Now, had she brought any other guys to meet you and, and her mom before Ivan? Yes, yes. Uh, let's see, she was dating a guy up in Minnesota, Mike Sargent. And Mike Sargent, anyway, she broke off with him when I asked her one day why they broke off. And uh, apparently he was getting into the drugs. He was, I guess he was pushing She backed out of it. She says, want no part of that. Well, then anyway, Mike uh, got murdered. If I understand the whole case right, but he was tortured before he was killed. He uh, he was what? And I, he was tortured. Uh, he was shot, I guess, in both knees and both elbows and, and the head. And that was Amy's boyfriend before Adam? They had been a boy and girlfriend for about uh, maybe six months before that. Ivan's next list he titled, Things I Need Before Much Time Passes. Number one, the apartment's cell phone records from the very first day that you got the service turned on for me to the day of November 8th, 2000. Two, Tawny's phone records for the whole duration that Amy Betcher was at her apartment November 7th and 8th. This would have been crucial. Amy didn't have a cell phone. She just used Ivan's. So Tawny's apartment phone records would have shown who Amy called while Tawny was working and Ivan was getting arrested. If Amy did in fact plant the murder weapon, assuming she didn't have the gun on her, she would have had to call that individual and tell them where she was to drop off the gun. It does beg the question, how and why is Amy planting a murder weapon that already has Ivan's print on the magazine? Another mind bender, but regardless, I would have loved to seen those phone records when I checked with a phone company, like Baby Dolls, their records are destroyed after seven years. So again, they were obtainable by a PI in 2001, but not 20 years after the fact. Number three, there was a phone turned into the courtroom as evidence. This was used against me because my phone number appeared on James' caller ID. It's very important that we retrieve all the numbers from that caller ID box. With an employee of Southwestern Bell on the witness stand, the prosecution stated, while apparently scrolling down the caller ID to call 26, it showed that Ivan called at 11.13 p.m. This is the call before the midnight visit. The prosecution also stated that Ivan was call 24 on the caller ID, calling earlier that evening at 9.59 p.m. While James and Amy's home phone was admitted into evidence, there was no other record of the rest of this caller ID log. Yet another piece of evidence that slipped through the defense's fingers. Five, the night I met Amy B. at Club 7, she had a friend with her named Raina. Raina would have been a great witness for our defense because Raina would have also confirmed that Amy B. was looking for a new victim the evening that she bumped into Bobbitt and myself at Club 7. This is the same weekend that Raina no longer wanted to be Amy's friend. Raina would have been a great witness, but my attorneys didn't think so and didn't even look into it. We need to find her and be ready with her testimony the next time we go to court for my appeal. The only thing I know about this girl is that she works for Apple Residential Leasing Apartments somewhere in Euless. She works at a complex named Wildwood. Mom, if you're able to contact Raina, she will give you all of her current contact info and I'm sure she'll be happy to testify for us. 
The only thing is that we have to find her. So Ivan started looking for this Reyna back in 2001. But what's interesting is, he didn't bring up the theory that he had by the time I started this case, which was that Amy was wearing a ring that she got from Reyna. I'm still trying to determine when that theory came about. Mom, this is what we need from the attorneys. How soon can we retrieve these items? All the travel receipts from Dallas to Arkansas and back to Dallas. They never introduced these as evidence. These receipts prove Amy's life was not in jeopardy. She could have told many people at multiple stops. People have asked why Ivan kept these travel receipts. And Ivan told me that since he had to travel around Dallas for his mortgage job, he saved any travel receipts to use as a tax write-off. I suggested that we should attempt to gather the gas station security video because Amy entered several stores alone while I waited in the car. Some of these gas stations had police or state troopers present. Geller didn't think that was a good idea. He stated that this would be a waste of time. What's fascinating is, these travel receipts could possibly have been one of the most critical pieces of exculpatory evidence in Ivan's case. But when Ivan's writing this letter, a week after Ivan's trial, it sounds like he didn't even realize it yet. However, all this is contingent on if Ivan was and is telling the truth, specifically about when they left for Arkansas. In this letter to his mom, Ivan says he wants the receipts to show all the gas stations he stopped at with Amy, showing all the places she could have potentially gotten away from him. But more importantly, what these receipts could have shown is the time they left Dallas in the Honda. And if that was before 11.15 a.m., that would have proven Ivan wasn't driving James Corvette for that 11.15 toll tag hit. As I said in episode 34, when analyzing Ivan and Amy's alleged routes of travel for the night of the murders, while Amy's route is not impossible, it is highly improbable, lining up her timeline with all the toll hits. On paper, Ivan's timeline and dropping off James Corvette at around 6.30 a.m. does look like what happened. But then, of course, James Corvette is back on the move and hits that toll at 11.15 a.m. If someone else was driving the Corvette at that time, these receipts could have proven it. And days after his trial ended, Ivan wrote to his lawyers trying to get them back. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Letter to Don High, November 16th, 2001. So this would be 10 days after the last letter to his mom. You'll remember Don High was Ivan's second chair counsel. Dear Don High, well, as you know, I was sent to death row. 
I'm not sure what would be better, living here with all these animals or being a POW in Vietnam. The living conditions are probably the same, but instead of being physically tortured, we're all mentally tortured every day. The whole time your firm has represented me, I've been told on numerous occasions that I will receive copies of the documents requested. Well, now I'm sitting on death row, and I still haven't received anything. So as you can see, I'm concerned about your commitments that have been made. For starters, please send me copies of all the motions that were filed with the court prior to and over the course of the trial, whether they were granted or denied. Since you guys were always so busy, and I always had to beg for 10 to 15 minutes here and there, so please provide me with your records of all the times we spent together discussing this case prior to the jury selection. Prior to finally meeting with you, Mr. High, I did meet with Mr. Geller four times at the Collin County Jail. Once I did meet you, I can recall having a total of four contact visits that included both you and Mr. Geller. Please provide me with all the notes taken from the discussions from the witnesses that you plan to cross-examine or plan to introduce to the court as a defense witness. In this copied file, please don't forget to include a list of all the witnesses that would have testified on behalf of me during the guilt and innocence phase of my trial. I'm anxious to view your list because not one person was brought to the stand to defend me during the guilt and innocence phase. Actually, the smarter thing to do is have your firm make me a full copy of everything in that office that pertains to my case. Please don't use the excuse of not having time to do so because that's what I've been hearing from your firm since it was appointed to defend me. Ten days after his letter to Don High. Letter to Matt Geller, November 26, 2001. Dear Mr. Geller, I'm sitting here on death row and no matter what knowledge you had pertaining to this case, you still didn't defend me, even according to the legal standards. Your firm knows it, and I know it. You allowed a bunch of drug addict losers to get up there and mention the most bizarre, untrue statements. Did you have a conversation with the defendant, Ivan Cantu, about these pretend mobsters calling you to try to protect Paul from, uh, from what was on its way? I did. I discussed it with Ivan. What did he offer to do to help you with your situation? He asked me if I would like to have Paul Maggio knocked off. Just because Lance Tackleman said that I offered to shoot his friend Paul Maggio, it doesn't mean that it's true. As my defense attorney, your job is to prove to the jury that he's not a credible witness. I gave you the information to do your job, but your lack of research based on the information I provided is the reason I got convicted. I can't believe Don had the gall to state to me, well, you got what you wanted. How disrespectful, considering that I would have only been pleased with this outcome if we had taken our shot on the guilt and innocence phase. Now I'm sitting here in this rat hole prison with the results of the worst case outcome, without fighting this case the way we should have, and that was head on. Please cooperate with me now and allow for me to get a copy of everything having to do with my case, which I've requested over and over. From a living hell, Ivan Cantu. Letter to Matt Geller, April 12, 2002. So about five months after the last letter. Dear Mr. Geller, from the time that you were appointed to me, you have stated on many occasions that I would receive copies of all information pertaining to my file located in your office. Well, now this is my third request to your law firm. If it's taking a little bit longer than you anticipated to copy everything in my file held in your office, please inform me with the proper courtesy of a letter. 
As your client, please honor my request for the third time now. At the time, Ivan's trial attorneys worked for the law firm Grubbs, High, Geller, and Associates. When Ivan got no response from High or Geller, he wrote to, Dear Philip Grubbs, your law firm represented me in Collin County for my charge of capital murder. Prior to my trial, my attorney, J. Matthew Geller, requested from my mother that she drop off copies of all my records. I've written your firm previously, requesting that you please send me copies of these records. Well, over a year has passed, and to this day, I've received nothing from your firm. Since you are the lead partner with this law firm, can you please see to it that my request is answered? These records are very important and a vital part of the investigation needed for me to properly assist my new attorney in handling my appeal. It would be most appreciated if you could literally copy my full file that your law firm has on record. My address information is listed above, and Mr. Grubbs, I thank you for your time today. But Ivan never did get his file, which included those travel receipts. The same year as these last few letters, 2002, there was another interesting turn of events that led to Ivan getting more of his side of the story on the record. Well, let's briefly talk about uh, this lawsuit, a wrongful death lawsuit. Uh, in 2002, you were deposed by an attorney that represented uh, the Kitchens family in a wrongful death suit versus your cousin's family, the, the Mosquitas. Uh, tell me about why you chose to participate and in, in testify in that or be deposed in that case. The reason why I decided to do that was because pr prior to that, let me back up a little bit, and um, before my direct appeal was filed in, twin, in 2002, when um, I was approached um, by my um, direct appeal attorney to um, participate in an interview in a deposition um, that would be coming up, um, that my attorney, his name was David Haynes, was in talks with Mr. Sutterth, who represented the kitchens. And I felt that they were lied to as well. They didn't know the truth and that there was information that they had case-wise in reference to the ring that was missing. Well, I had nothing, for one thing, I had nothing to hide. And they, I mean, they were, I mean, they obviously were were arguing and fighting over the, the estate, the Mosquitas in the kitchens, but I, I had nothing to hide. And um, I thought that through the deposition, um, that side of the family or, or both sides of the family would, would be um, aware to the truth of the case and the characters involved and, and what happened to James and Amy. Okay, now, Mrs. Sunderth, before you ask me any questions, can I cover some things with you? Certainly, certainly. Okay, in the position that I'm in right now, I feel that there's a lot of information that you don't know, and it's not only the kitchens, but there's a lot that you guys don't know that wasn't correctly brought up in my trial. Right. But with information that you guys don't know. I'm sure that's true, because I honestly don't even know what was brought up in your trial. Some of the questions that you were asking me, your reference to a key and just some other things are completely inaccurate. So apparently before this deposition's recording, the deposing lawyer was under the assumption that he had a key to James and Amy's house. I'm curious as to 
Are you receiving your information from Collin County or from the kitchens? Honestly, I've received some from newspaper articles they had brought. Throw that out the window. I mean, the kitchens, you know, didn't even sit through your trial. So there's a lot, you know, they wouldn't necessarily know a lot of stuff. Okay, well, let me ask you this. What is it that you're trying to receive out of the... Was there a life insurance policy that was paid? Um, I don't know anything about life insurance. What I'm looking at is the homeowner's insurance policy that's on the house, the house policy. That policy says the owner of the house, James, if someone is hurt or killed on the property, Amy, and it's due in part because of something negligent that James did, leaving the house unlocked, that sort of thing, then she can maybe recover or her heirs can recover. Okay. And I just, I was wondering whether if pressed by anybody, by me or by the attorneys on the other side of this case, if it turns into a case against the insurance company, whether someone was going to ask you and you were going to say, gosh, I broke into the house or, you know, and I understand, you know, you don't necessarily need to say much of anything. So that's where this lawyer was coming from. And Ivan was coming from another angle. Well, if it means it's, I just, I wish you were more informed. Well, if there's anything you can better inform me of, we'd be very happy. Ivan saw this lawsuit between Amy Kitchen's family and James' family as an opportunity, an opportunity to have his side of the story finally investigated. Okay, you work for a civil litigation firm, correct? Correct, and as I told you, we're investigating this on behalf of the Kitchens. I understand. Do you have a criminal law division? No, we don't have anyone here that does anything with criminal law. Okay. We've got six, seven lawyers now, and we're all civil attorneys. Okay. Do you have a staff of private investigators? We have an in-house legal assistant who also does some investigation for us, and he hasn't done any independent investigation in this case. Basically, all I've done is I've talked to the kitchens, I've looked through some newspaper articles that they had cut out, I don't even have a copy of the trial transcript or anything like that. My concern is that if you're the private investigator that's kind of winging this thing, I mean, there's a lot of things you don't know. And what scares me is you've already been misinformed of a lot of things. We don't, we're not trying to make a case against you. I realize that. You see, I'm sitting in a position where the state wants to kill me. I certainly understand. And the information I have gets me home in the future. What is the best and proper way to to get all this done? I understand. I mean, I can tell you that anything you tell me, I'm going to use it for the purpose that I tell you I'm going to use it, which is in a civil lawsuit. Right. And obviously, if somebody from, you know, a prosecutor, somebody came to me or an attorney working for the state in your criminal trial and asked me what you told me, I would have to tell them. So I'm not, I don't want you to be misled, but... I understand. Just because I've been convicted of it does not mean... No, I understand. And, and you know, that hurts us. We're going to be arguing, forget about that. We're focusing on an earlier time. We're focusing on premises liability. That was an unsafe house because he had his girlfriend out there living there and wasn't keeping it secure. Well, let's say that James Mosqueda was a drug dealer, which was confirmed by the Dallas Police Department. Yes, that's another angle, that he knowingly associated with a criminal element and brought her in and exposed her to that scene. Now, did she knowingly know she was dating a drug dealer? 
I really don't know that. Her parents, you know, tell me that she didn't. Yeah, but see, there's a lot of things her parents don't know. Because I've never had a chance to speak to them. Right, I understand. James and I were family. Everyone based assumptions based off of what other people said and people that never even got to speak to me. One of the main concerns is that that ring that Amy Kitchen was wearing that they supposedly say is missing. Right. Was a high dollar expensive ring. And James is no dummy. I want to know if her parents had the GIA cert on that ring, which is like a serial number encoded so it can be tracked. Okay, it's called a GIA cert? GIA cert. Ivan was referring to a diamond certified by the Gemological Institute of America. Is that like a certificate you get when you buy a ring from a jeweler? It's like a VIN number on a car, but engraved on the... Like engraved inside the band? No, inside the diamond. Oh, oh, okay. I know what you're talking about. Like a laser deal on the diamond or something? Yeah, it's like having a VIN number inside of a diamond. Now, see, the thing is, Amy Betcher testified that I have this ring and that I took it from her. Yeah. That's incorrect. What I want to do is, if there's an active track record on that ring, obviously I don't have the ring and I've never had the ring. Right. And if that action was done after I was put in jail, then Amy Betcher's lying. Amy testified that you gave her the ring, but that you've now got the ring? No, never had the ring. Okay, but Amy testified that you gave her a ring. Correct. Okay, Uh, did they have the ring at trial? No, there was never, there was no ring. So they never came up with the physical evidence? It was just Amy saying that this ring was supposedly the same ring and all that business? Right. And what's going to help me in the future is her parents know where that ring was purchased. That's Amy Kitchen's parents. I need to have a private investigator try to find out the GIA cert on that ring. If that ring's ever tried to be sold, pawned, whatever, there's a history of that. I see. It's important to you to show, to know that's the different ring. I can see that helping your case quite a bit. It would be something interesting for me to track down as well, because, you know, uh, that could help shed some light, too, on who was in that house. This GIA cert angle is an interesting way to track down Amy Kitchen's engagement ring that I don't believe anyone else even considered. It is fascinating that Ivan was the one that brought it up. Before we dig into this GIA cert angle, let's recap what Amy Betcher said about the ring. She testified that after Ivan took her back to the crime scene, they went back to their apartment. That's when the upstairs neighbor saw Ivan changing CDs in the back of the Corvette. Well, Amy testified while they were back at their apartment, that was when Ivan proposed to her and gave her the ring and she wore the ring that night and showed it off to her parents the following day in Arkansas. And then a few days later, when they were coming back to Dallas from Arkansas, that's when Ivan took the ring back. When I asked her, Why did he take back the ring? And what was your reaction? She said, I don't know, you just said he was gonna get it sized or whatever. Oh, he said he was gonna get it sized for you? Yeah. She doesn't say that very convincingly. Regardless, clearly Ivan never had an opportunity to get the ring sized. But let's say that was Amy Kitchen's ring, and Ivan did take it back from Amy Betcher on their way back to Dallas. 
he would have taken it back in the afternoon of November 7th and presumably put it in his pocket. So, according to Amy Betcher, Ivan would have had quite a few things in his pockets. He still had James and Amy Kitchen's IDs, James' wallet, the murder weapon, and now Amy Kitchen's engagement ring. After getting back to Dallas, Ivan and Amy went to Tawny's. Then they went to IHOP, then to Metals, and back to Tawny's. Then Ivan met his mom the next morning, and he was arrested on the way to Sylvia's lawyer friend's office. After Ivan was arrested, the ring was not found on his person or in the Honda. So essentially, by that point, poof, the ring had disappeared. Never to be seen again. So from the drive back to Dallas to his arrest, what could he have done with it? Where'd it go? Well, Amy also said during the early morning of November 8th, After medals, we go to Tawny's. Ivan stopped at a dumpster and put James' wallet and Amy's ID in a Burger King bag and threw it in there. So if Ivan, in fact, did steal Amy Kitchen's ring, and we believe this part of Amy Betcher's story, a possibility would be that he also put the ring in this Burger King bag, and Amy didn't notice. So this missing engagement ring would have been thrown away in a dumpster outside Tawny's apartment, then a few days later hauled off to a landfill. And now, 22 years later, the Burger King bag has long been disintegrated, James' wallet and the IDs unrecognizable, and Amy Kitchen's diamond platinum engagement ring would be covered with trash at the bottom of the landfill. At least that's one theory. If Ivan really stole the ring and Amy was being truthful about the Burger King bag story. But that theory begs the following questions. Why did Ivan steal James and Amy Kitchen's IDs, take them to Arkansas, just to throw them away back in Dallas? And even more puzzling, since Ivan knew he was going to meet with Detective Wynn in the morning, why would he not have put the murder weapon in the Burger King bag, sending that out to the landfill too? Why would Ivan leave the most damning piece of evidence, lying under Tawny's couch cushion, to surely be found? Or could Ivan's GIA cert angle debunk this theory? I'm not sure if anyone ever looked into this, even after Ivan brought it up, but I thought it was worth a shot. I looked back at the ring's appraisal document in the case file, and as it turned out, it wasn't certified by GIA, the Gemological Institute of America. It had an EGL cert. It was certified by European Gemological Laboratories, and after making some calls, I was told that Amy Kitchen's diamond, which came from overseas, most likely never had any microscopic number because there's a border ban on diamonds with laser inscriptions. And also, this EGL grading system was inferior, so the stones in the ring would likely not even match the report on the appraisal. So basically, there's no way to track or find Amy Kitchen's ring with this EGL cert. However, if it did have a GIA cert, like Ivan suggested, that would be a viable way to track down this ring. Back in 2002, 
there was no way for Ivan to have known one way or another if Amy Kitchen's ring had a GIA cert or the EGL cert. So the question becomes, was he just trying to send this lawyer down a rabbit trail with a dead end? Or did Ivan really want this ring located? You know, and I've asked my attorneys, my trial attorneys, to get the information on the kitchens. They've never provided it for me. Sure. Well, you know, the kitchens, they don't have any interest in keeping any facts from coming out. I mean, they want every fact to come out in this case, obviously. And so if they've got some information on that, I'm sure. Now, are you able to get me contact information so I can start coordinating with the kitchens? I've been wanting to start correspondence with the kitchens. Reminded me of the jailhouse tapes. When Ivan said to his mom, If Mr. Kramer's coming Wednesday, my visiting is not until Thursday. Or call and see if, if Spencer's from out of town, if he can come up here on Wednesday. Oh, okay. Because I'd like to see him while he's here. It's as if Ivan is oblivious to the fact that Kramer and the Kitchens did not believe in his innocence. Uh, you're welcome to try and contact them directly, although I'll bet you would have better luck contacting them through me. Okay, so if I promise to get it to you, then you can get it to her. Certainly. And I will certainly see what information they might have on that ring and the GIA cert, too. Well, that's just one thing. There's 10 other things that they could help me with, but I'm sure you probably don't want to get into that today. Sure. You might want to write a letter. And I mean, I'm not saying this is any kind of quid pro quo. As far as the claim against the insurance company, it's not important who the perpetrator was. It's the... You want to be able to, to clear this up on a silver platter. I mean, it's a lot more important to you, I think, to get everything cleared up. Obviously, you've got a lot more at stake. Right. But do you, I mean, do you have a suspicion of how the, how the key supposedly wound up on your key ring or in your possession? Why they're saying, you know... Well, they're saying that because of the people that testified. Oh. Let me give you the rundown. Okay. James Mosqueda was a very large-scale drug dealer. The main ones that went saying Mr. Cantu did this, Mr. Cantu did that, were gentlemen by the name of Anthony Fonseca and Carlos Gonzalez. Okay. Anthony Fonseca is now in a federal penitentiary for drug dealing. Okay. Anthony and Carlos and James were, were all drug dealers at one time. How I know this is because I'm cousins with James. Sure. I hear and see things, but no, I was never a drug dealer. Now, James, you know, his parents acted like, oh my gosh, this is a big surprise. I can't believe my son was murdered over a drug deal. At 15 years old, this kid was shot at with 12-gauge shotguns. And his parents didn't think there was a problem. You know, that was never brought up. Now, here's my mother who purchased a car for me, and I couldn't afford the payment, so I turned it over to Anthony. Anthony did let me use the car one day. When I returned the car back to Anthony one day, my, well... Amy, Amy Betcher's apartment key was still on that key ring. So at the supposed time that Amy Betcher and myself were out of town, Anthony Fonseca, who lived with Carlos Gonzalez at the time, had a key to the apartment. Okay. Now with me sitting on death row and mailing people information and receiving information and sitting here and thinking about things, that's how I can put all this together now. Okay. Before Amy Betcher even met me, she had already known Anthony Fonseca and Carlos Gonzalez. Okay. And that was not revealed to the court. Okay. And they'd worked together at one time at, at a club they called Baby Dolls. 
Okay. Now, I did work there at one time, but it was after the fact that both of them had already worked there. Oh, they already knew each other from there before. Correct. Okay. So before Amy Betcher even met me, she had already known those guys. That was Ivan's hunch. It has never been proven. But if Ivan is innocent and Carlos and Anthony had something to do with setting him up, it stands to reason Carlos, Anthony, and Amy must have had some unknown connection between them for everything to flow like it did. Okay, so did Amy Betcher get the key to James' house, or do you, I mean, do you know if James had a... Well, I suspect that that Anthony Fonseca and Carlos already had a key to James's house. Oh, okay, okay, so those guys had a key. If not, they were able to get it from a gentleman by the name of Frank Perez, who was actually staying at the home at the time. Okay, yeah, and that was the other... I mean, was that guy involved in some stuff, too? Absolutely. Yeah, I figured he probably was, and he certainly would have had a key. He, I know he popped up out of the blue to work with James at his mortgage company. Now, James knew Frank Perez because he was a purchaser of cocaine. Yeah. Now, Frank Perez has lost numerous jobs from drug use. I think James always felt inclined to want to help this guy get on his feet, help him out. Right. But this guy not having an ounce of mortgage experience, not a wink of knowing anything about the mortgage business, he starts working for James, got to meet the staff there. Now, keep in mind, Anthony Fonseca worked there too. Okay, okay. Chris Head and Ray Sanchez. Now, what a lot of people don't know is Ray is a Christian. He's a shining star in James's office. You'll remember from the very first episode, Ray was the one that called Sylvia. And he said, Sylvia, I just found out that James is dead. And I said, what? He says, yeah. He says, I've got the baby. I can't go over to his house. Will you please go over there and call me and let me know what's going on, if this is true? I said, there must be some mistake, right? James dealt drugs. Chris had dealt drugs. Anthony Fonseca dealt drugs. They kept it from Ray. Ray was one of their good frontmen that didn't have a criminal history that wasn't running drugs that he employed at the mortgage company. So if anything went down, they got a super shining star there. Now, Chris Head, when James and Amy went to the Bahamas to get engaged, uh-huh. Chris Head was still working for James at the time. Well, Chris was having a pretty bad drug problem, so James cut him off. James was giving him product to sell. Right. James was not getting his money, so him and Chris Head were having fallouts. You'll also remember from the first episode, I mentioned there was an anonymous tip to police that brought up this falling out between Chris Head and James. The tip came in on... November 6th, 2000. So two days after the bodies were found. Time, 9.30 a.m. I received a call from an anonymous caller that gave information on the victims and associates. She stated that she fears for her own safety and spoke only on the condition that she remains anonymous. The victim, James Mosqueda, was a drug dealer who supplied drugs to Chris Head. Chris Head is an employee of James at the mortgage company. They had a recent huge falling out. Amy McCullough is the current girlfriend of Chris Head. Now named Amy Head. Amy McCullough works at AALFS Manufacturing. Amy has not been seen or heard from since the murder. 
Caller believes Amy is in danger, but if not, she should have more information on the victims. So this caller was a female. On the report, she also included Amy Head's birth date and address. So she must have been a close friend of Amy Head. She knew of the drugs and the falling out. But according to Ivan, the huge falling out didn't happen until... James and Amy were in the Bahamas getting engaged. Chris Head decides to tell Ray that, hey, our boss James Mosqueda is a big drug dealer. Oh my gosh. And this mortgage company is only a front. So while James and Amy are in the Bahamas trying to get engaged, Ray calls James and ruins their vacation and says, hey, Chris Head is telling me you're a big drug dealer. You've been a big drug dealer. You sell kilos of cocaine. What's going on here? I can't work in this environment. That's Ray telling James this. I've got a wife that's a school teacher. I've got kids. Why are you putting me in a bad position like this? Uh-huh. James gets back from the Bahamas. Obviously, him and Chris have a big confrontation there in the office. I'll bet. Chris just decides to leave the office, running up and down the hall, screaming, you're nothing but drugs and money. You're nothing but drugs and money. Uh-huh. Well, that was their fallout. But you'll remember from episode 20, Amy Head said... Chris and James got into a fight because, as I discussed, they Chris left the mortgage business because of Ivan. And I know there was a huge... Amy Head said the falling out was over Ivan and that Chris told... James that he's basically a cancer um, and he no longer wanted to work with him. I mean, I do know there was bad blood from that between Chris, James, and Ivan. Going back to the huge fallout, if that happened around the same time of James and Amy Kitchen's engagement trip to the Bahamas... That was at the end of July 2000, and Ivan left James' mortgage business in March and started with Southwestern Mortgage that same month. So that would be four months prior to the Bahamas. Okay. So Chris and James are no longer working together, but now Chris is good friends with Anthony and Carlos. They all grew up together in Mesquite. Okay. So not only do you got, with James being dead... Yeah, Carlos Gonzalez and Anthony Fonseca still absorb his drug business. Okay, yep. They stood to gain from that. And they all grew up together in the Pleasant Grove Mesquite area. They've known each other. They know how each other thinks. Carlos Gonzalez and Anthony Fonseca have been wanted by the DEA many times. The DEA's even busted down homes that they've owned, but they've always been a step ahead. Okay. They've got track records of, I mean, getting caught with getting busted for selling 50 to 100 pounds of marijuana at a time. Cocaine, you name it. Do you know if James would let them in the house during any of the time that Amy lived out there? I'm willing to bet those gentlemen had keys to his home. Really? Uh Uh-huh. That's very interesting. But you know that Anthony and Carlos had keys to the house, or had a key, or... The James's house? Yes, sir. If they were going to go by there and pick something up or drop it off without him being present... Uh Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah. So that's why they needed to have a key, obviously. Sure. Now think about it. Here's one thing that nobody thought about. Let me cover this with you. Okay. As soon as all this happens, right, the first one on the scene, and this is based off a report from my mother and from and from testimony when all this happened, the first one at the scene that was there checking everything out was Chris Head. And I thought, well, what is he doing here? And how does he know about this? My husband said whenever his, when James's mom called him, actually, no, it wasn't James's mom. It was Amy's mom found them. And then... Amy's mom called my father-in-law because they, I guess, had talked before in the past. And then my father-in-law called us and we lived five minutes away and we jumped in the car. And on our way over there, before we knew anything, 
Chris automatically said, Ivan. Now, how did he know to go racing over there if nobody told him about it? Now, he even lived with James at one time in that home, so he did have a key. Is he the guy that was actually living out there at the time, or...? No, 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 that, that's Frank Perez. Oh, Frank, yeah, right. Now, Frank Perez was just a cocaine user. He purchases from James. Okay. Now, this is a very important part, and I don't... Do you know how to contact Ray Sanchez? I'm sure I could. I've never... Uh... He was an employee of James. Here's what's real interesting. All of a sudden, you know, and James and Ray were supposed to be real close. All of a sudden, James brings this new guy into the business that doesn't know anything about mortgage into the company. Uh-huh. Ray Sanchez was a little concerned. As soon as James dies, this guy's wanting to take over his company, wanting to go through his home. These guys are wanting money orders and business records. That doesn't seem odd to anybody. After the police let everybody in that Saturday night, he's in there and he starts getting the rent check from the duplex or the houses that James had. He had a couple of rent houses in Oak Cliff and he's getting these rent checks. Were you eventually allowed to go inside the house? Yes, ma'am. When you went inside the home, what did you do? I went in with the family and James's mother was pretty distraught and we were just sitting there talking in the living room at first. And he's telling Gladys that he'll deposit these for the for the business that he's taking over James's business. When Gladys heard him say that, she doesn't know him from from anything. Did you gather or collect anything from the home while you were in there? There was some check stubs and some receipts and checks for the company. And I asked James's mother if I could take those with me, and she said she didn't care, so I took them with me. She says, who in the hell are you? And then she told him, get the fuck out of here. She threw him out of the house. Why did you want to take those with you? I didn't want anybody to steal them because there was a bunch of people coming in and out of the house that we didn't know. What happened to James's mortgage company? It's been disbanded. Whose decision was that? I wanted to keep it together in memory of, but we really didn't. I mean, we were using his license. Uh-huh. This guy doesn't know a thing about the mortgage business. As soon as James dies, he wants to go in James's home and grab all the financial records and money orders. Gosh and run a mortgage company when he doesn't know anything about it. And wait, is this Frank you're talking about? Yeah, Frank Perez. Yeah. Right. Now, he was living at the home, and I'm saying if James trusts this guy enough to bring him into his business, the way Frank said, and bring him into the home and let him stay there, why wouldn't he have a key? Although Frank testified he had a key to James' office, he was never asked by the prosecution or the defense if he had a key to James' home. However... It stands to reason he would. Right. Keep in mind, Chris Head lived there at one time also. Oh, so he would have had a key if he had lived there. Now, that was prior to... Before Frank lived there? Right, before Frank was staying there, right. So he, at one time, Chris lived there and had a key. And then, of course, Frank lived there and probably still had a key. Now, Detective Wynn also testified, you know, here's, I'm not in a gang. I'm not in their drug-dealing world that they were in. Yeah, when the funeral was going on, Detective Wynn testified that at the funeral, somebody displayed gang flyers all over the cars at the funeral. Well, the only ones related to gangs were Chris Head and Carlos and Anthony. So while I'm sitting in the Dallas County Jail and the funeral's going on for Amy and James, somebody is putting, oh, we got you flyers on all the cars at the funeral. I never heard about that. That's bad. 
You'll remember from episode 28, the episode on the Oak Cliff connection, I spoke about these flyers or notes left on cars outside James and Amy's wake. Four words were written on the 7-Eleven napkins in red marker in what appears to be a gang font. The flyers read, King Tone, James Lives. Now King Tone was the former member of the Latin Kings gang. So were some of the Latin Kings or another gang at James and Amy's wake. Were these notes left out of respect for James or as an indication that there was some sort of gang involvement in the murders? These notes are still a mystery. Well, those flyers and those napkins were even admitted into my courtroom. Now, when all this, when all this happened, Detective Wynn had testified there was an anonymous call saying that Mario Rojas had something to do with this thing. They never even looked into that issue. They never... Without a defense in my trial, with just having people lie up there on the stand when they weren't properly cross-examined, when information wasn't brought to them and introduced to them, that's how I got convicted. And now at one time before, before we rested, I wanted to fire my counsel and proceed pro se. Wow, oh my gosh. And I was denied that because my attorney fought against me and said that I was not in my right frame of mind and I had no idea. Interesting. I'm obviously in the right frame of mind if I see these people are screwing me, lying, and they're going to put me on death row. Yeah, I never even, I haven't talked to your trial attorney. Well, they won't even talk to me or write me back, so don't feel too bad. They just kind of washed their hands of the case, probably. They made their money and went home. They never even hired a private investigator on my case. Gosh. And they told me I'd be working with one for nine months. Well, I'm sorry to hear that. I never like to hear that attorneys did a bad job for somebody. Basically, with James being dead, uh-huh. Chris Head can associate in that and help Carlos and Anthony because they have a history of doing that. And we're not talking peanuts. We're talking big money. We're talking big money. Yeah, right. That's probably worked out good for them. They've taken over his business, I guess. Well, I mean, I appreciate the information that you have given me. Um, this gives me a lot to look into, a lot to go on. I mean, I'm not hearing anything from you that sounds like anybody ever ever broke into that house or did something that James was sort of aware of. Oh, I had one more question for you. There was something about, I guess it was your girlfriend, Amy. I saw this either in the newspaper. She had testified that you had been on the phone with James and that you then told her you were fixing to go over to the house and do something bad to him. That's what she testified to, right? Now, if that was the case, why wouldn't she have picked up the phone and hit redial, called their number, or called 911? That was kind of my question, yeah. Why? It didn't make a lot of sense when I heard about that. Right. Well, there's a lot of things with Amy's testimony that doesn't make sense. So like I said, if there's any information I need to get to you or I'm trying to think if, what other additional questions do you have? I'm a little unclear on whether he was still living there or had just stopped living there. Who? Frank Perez? Yes, sir. He was still staying there at the time everything happened. He just didn't happen to be there? It just so happens that night he was staying at a buddy's house like an hour away or something. Okay. Well, again, I appreciate your time. Thank you, Mr. Kentu. So this story continued to simmer well after trial. 
and it was around this point in the timeline that Ivan's next set of lawyers were appointed. After being found guilty of capital murder in 2001, uh, next up was your direct appeal, and in the filed appeal as a point of error, it states that you contend uh, that if the crime had taken place as Amy Betcher alleges, that uh, she in, then was an accomplice in the murders. Uh, did you tell your appeal attorney that Amy was your accomplice? death warrant has been issued. If you feel like more people need to hear this story, now is really the time to spread the word. Special thanks to Michael Haggerty for conducting Ivan's interview. Ivan's letters read by Ryan Freed. The judge read by Steve Nupp. The Prosecution, read by Catherine Ganymi Leach. The Defense, read by David Whitlock. Detective Wynn, read by Vernon T. Foster II. Detective Whitsitt, read by Joshua Lute. The Chris Head Police Report, read by Thomas James. The Deposing Lawyer, read by Jacqueline Lynn. Mixing and Mastering, by Jody Abbott. Thank you for listening, and stay tuned.